millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. Little Atoms has a new podcast called Government vs. the Robots. In each episode, host Jonathan Tanner meets the people thinking about how technology will shape our politics in the years ahead. There's episodes on driverless cars and the impact of big data online already. Go to iTunes now and search for Government vs. the Robots and subscribe to find out what the future holds. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, journalist and feminist campaigner Julie Bindle on her latest book, The Pimping of Prostitution, and then The Guardian sketch writer John Craze on his latest book, I Maybot, The Rise and Fall. Julie Bindle is a renowned investigative journalist and has written extensively on religious fundamentalism, violence against women, the international surrogacy trade, mail-order brides, trafficking and unsolved murders. She writes regularly for The Guardian, New Statesman, Truth Dig and Standpoint magazine and frequently appears on the BBC and Sky News. She was visiting journalist at Brunel University from 2013 to 2014 and now is on the advisory board for Byline.com. Julie's latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is The Pimping of Prostitution, Abolishing the Sex Work Myth. Julie, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you, pleasure to be here. Let's talk about how this book came about, first of all, and by that I mean we'll talk about in a minute about your background in this work, but why now? Well, I've been focusing just on the international sex trade, and my opposition to it, in case you hadn't already guessed, uh, for just over 20 years and, you know, for 35 seven years I've been involved in anti-violence against women campaigns, writing and research and the like. But I started focusing on this issue because it's the worst thing that can happen to women in my view and particularly bearing in mind that there is a lobby opposing the very notion that this is harmful. You know, unlike with other issues such as rape and domestic violence and child sexual abuse, which the vast majority, if not all, right-minded people, progressives in particular, accept is, is just not not the thing to do. So about three years ago, I just couldn't deny the fact anymore that right-minded people, that the progressives within my world, the wider community in which I move, just got this completely wrong. And I don't mean to sound arrogant. I don't mean that I'm right about anything in particular at all. But that there was a clear disconnect for the liberal left about what the sex trade actually is. So whilst these people would always agree with you when you said, look... The fight to end racism is an honourable one and I want to support it. You know, they'd nod away and if you said I want to end child sex abuse, they'd agree that this needs to be ended, eradicated, eliminated, stopped. But when one would speak about the sex trade and prostitution to the same people, they would say, stop it, what, you mean end it? You mean no prostitution? Really, how? And some of them would even laugh. I don't mean unkindly, and remember these are my peers I'm talking about. But they would say, but how would you do that? They never asked the same question about these other social ills and atrocities. So I started everywhere I went in the world where I travelled to do research for my journalism or other stuff. I would ask people in restaurants, in meetings, sometimes even in queues, what they thought would solve the problems inherent to the sex trade. And I always got almost exactly the same answer back, which is, Let's legalise it. Make it safer for the girls. And honestly, if I had a pound for every time I've heard that, I could fund my journalism for life without ever having to go to an editor for a commission. So 
I thought, okay, the time is ripe. I need to have a look at what we know about the sex trade and who we know it from and what shapes our views, where this mythology about it being the oldest profession and an inevitability comes from and, most importantly, as a radical feminist, why so many people, including progressives, have this notion that if men don't get sex when they want it, how they want it, with whom they want it, they might turn into rabid rapists because that's not what feminists think of men at all. So you describe prostitution as a human rights violation against women and girls. But as you've just described, there are, you know, there are plenty of people who think that this is a valid choice. And I'm not even talking about you know, empowering or whatever. Can you see any circumstances under which it's a valid choice? Well, I see circumstances in which it is occasionally, rarely a choice. But let's define choice first. To make a choice, you've got to have an alternative that you could also choose. So if it's a choice out of no choice, then we just have to use another word. We have to use coercion or desperation. There are, of course, the 1%, as I refer to them in the book, of women and a few men who think to themselves, OK, to get me through this degree course, I'm going to do high-class escorting. Or I'll just go and turn a few tricks, pull some money in, pay the bills, and I can live off the, the money I earn throughout my um, studies or to get me out of debt or even to buy a car. Now, these are very exceptional circumstances. And yes, you can definitely talk about someone who dabbles in a particular form of prostitution as making more of a choice than a 15-year-old who's pimped, undoubtedly. It's never empowering. I think even those who are sometimes referred to as happy hookers wouldn't refer to themselves as that. I think that there are some, such as in Germany, where I've just been to launch my book, who are spokespeople for the government because they have legalised prostitution and the government actually takes the revenue from this and funds all the organisations to say how great it is. There are those who will say that they enjoy it. But in reality, this is not a job that you would enjoy. So even if you actually give the benefit of the doubt to the 1%, and I do not aim to ever speak for any woman or man who gives me their view on this, it's a choice out of no choice, or they're what I would refer to as tourists. So they're the very posh, very well-educated white women who decide to dabble in a little bit of escorting, a little bit of webcam work, a bit of stripping, or turn the odd trick um, for anthropological reasons, for a kind of a, I don't know, narcissistic um, validation of themselves as someone who is an expert in what they're writing about. But the reason why I call them tourists is because they, of course, dabble in something that they don't ever have to be involved in. And they're the ones that believe that there is a subclass of women for whom prostitution is the only option. So they're the ones that write the books. They're the ones that usually have the PhDs in the topic. And they're the ones whose voices we hear on radio and whose faces we see on TV. Let's talk about the the dominant discourses, I'd say, around prostitution. So it tends nowadays to fall into two camps. So you've got the legalisation, discrimination people, and then this idea called the Nordic model. Describe both of those. Well, legalisation is usually now substituted semantically for decriminalisation, and I'll, I'll explain why. Germany was the first country to legalise its sex trade right back in the late 70s in Europe, and the Netherlands followed suit in 2000. And then, of course, we've got the 10 counties in Nevada in the US that have legalised brothels, and we know them because they've been on HBO, Bunny Ranch and Dennis Hoff, the uh, mega pimp out there who sells it like a, a great commercial business. So in Europe, legalisation has been an absolute disaster. It has failed spectacularly. Even its governments, never mind its citizens, have accepted that. And in particular, actually, most of the people in prostitution have accepted that legalisation is merely the state taking over as pimp. We've seen an increase in murders of women by pimps and, and johns. We have seen police harassing the women despite the fact that there's no criminal sanctions against them, but in fact the, the law takes a hands-off approach except for regulation and licensing. And the promises that we heard trotted out by the governments that brought in this, um, this legal approach have in fact not come to fruition. The opposites happened, so their promises were and included. It will break the links between prostitution, free and chosen prostitution, and organised crime and trafficking. It will mean that there are no underage girls and boys in the industry. It will stop street prostitution and it will stop pimping. 
it will curb the numbers of those accessing prostitution services because it's all above board and men won't be attracted to the seedy side of it. Well, the opposite's happened in every single instance I've just given you. So we've seen an increase in street prostitution in all of the countries where legalisation has been introduced. We've seen absolutely no break between the criminals, the pimps, the traffickers and the other types of prostitution. And we've seen illegal brothels pop up behind the legal ones because it provides, of course, a smokescreen. And we've seen an increase in the demand. So the numbers of men accessing sexual services and therefore the numbers of women selling sexual services and therefore the numbers of women being brought in from other countries. So New Zealand, its government was looking at its sex market, which for a small country with more sheep than people, it's it's actually quite vibrant. And it decided to decriminalise rather than legalise. So in other words, just have a Wild West situation, just completely remove every single regulatory aspect. And the state wouldn't be a pimp, the state would simply allow it to happen. There's only a cigarette paper between decriminalisation and legalisation. Because, of course, those that want to open a brothel still have to fill in a form to get a licence, unless they open a very small one with fewer than four women, and then it can just operate with impunity. The form that New Zealand potential brothel owners, or pimps as I would call them, is exactly half the length as the form that you have to fill in to adopt a dog or a cat from Battersea Dogs Home, so it's three pages long. That is legalisation and decriminalisation. It rests on the premise that you can never end prostitution, that there is always going to be a group of women who want to sell it, always a group of men that want to buy it, because this is highly gendered, and that we can't really do anything to, to stop this trade and to get the women out, or importantly, to deter sex buyers from doing this. So conversely, you've got the Nordic model, which, because it's reached, it spread its tentacles outside of of the Nordic region, it's now referred to as the abolitionist model. Now, this is based on the human rights premise that nobody's body is there to be bought, sold, bartered, rented. And it's not anti-sex, it's not moralistic. It is a very progressive law because it's a whole package. Sweden introduced this in 1999 after pressure from feminists and women in parliament that saw this was a human rights abuse of the most disenfranchised women in society. And it brought with it not just decriminalising anyone in prostitution. So any woman, man, child, transgender person, anyone selling sex was instantly decriminalised, which is the most important part as far as I'm concerned. It also criminalised those who were paying for sex or attempting to pay for sex, but not in a way that would put more men in prison unless they are repeat and violent offenders. But the men would get a fine, a criminal record, and therefore a deterrence. But also society, through the government and through NGOs that it funded, would be educated about the problems inherent to prostitution, about why it's unacceptable for anyone to pay for sex, about how those unfortunate enough to be selling sex should be offered, at least, the option to exit, to be supported to get out of the sex trade. And it was a little bit like when we and other countries introduced the ban on smoking in public buildings or the anti-smacking children law or the drink driving laws. If you introduce the law without public education, people would think, what the hell's this? Why can't I light up in a pub? What's wrong with that? I've always done that. Why can't I go into a brothel and pay for sex with a woman who is there of her own free will? Who's it harming? So the educational bit was really important. And it's now in several other countries, Norway, Finland, France, Ireland, and a couple of other countries I'm sure I've forgotten. And how has that been going then? Has that, has that been successful? Because it seems that, I mean, obviously people that are pro-sex work seem to think that the Nordic model itself doesn't help women. Well, it's not perfect, but it is a damn sight better than making the state a pimp or leaving a group of women largely represented by those who've been sexually abused, homeless, or those from black and indigenous and other minority ethnic communities, and poor women, of course and just expecting them to kind of mop up the mess of male violence. What's really good and successful about the abolitionist model is that it has a normative effect and a preventative effect. So I would far rather that men look at this legislation, think about what's behind it, and choose not to go out to a brothel or the street that night. I'd far rather that that crime didn't happen. And I really do not approve of putting anyone in prison unless they need to be there. I would really take at least 80% of people out of our prisons and think of an alternative. So I'm not a law and order, hang em and flog em type. But young people are growing up in Sweden and in Norway and in France and in the other countries that has brought in this law. 
and they're recognising that this is an aspect of inequality, that this is that prostitution is both a cause and a consequence of women's oppression and inequality in relation to men. But when you ask how it's going, obviously different countries have different approaches. Stats are very hard to argue and to back up in many ways because somebody can just come up with research that shows the opposite. But one thing you can't argue with are dead bodies in morgues. You know, we have murder statistics and homicide statistics and... We also have the figures, the numbers of women who die indirectly as a result of prostitution, be it hypothermia by sleeping out on the streets or drug abuse or taking their own life. In countries that have introduced the abolitionist model, there's been, uh, this, this is all of the countries involved from 1999 and onwards when the laws were brought in. There's been one murder of a woman in prostitution by a pimp or a john. There have been none in Sweden at all. There have been several in Germany under legalisation, scores in the Netherlands under legalisation, and Nevada, you have to look at the crime stats overall on violence against women. There's more domestic homicides, and some of those are pimp-related, of women in Nevada than any other state in the US. So it has definitely not, as our critics would say, increased violence against women in prostitution. It definitely isn't criminalisation of the women through the back door, which is what they argue, saying that, of course, you know, that the police in looking for the Johns to arrest will kick down the door of a hotel, hold the woman captive until she agrees to give evidence, and then the landlord will throw her out because, you know, she's uh, she's been uh, revealed as being prostituting in there. It's lies. It's lies. I've been out with the police in Sweden, for example. I've seen the way that they handle the Johns, how they respect the women, and how the women are under no obligation to give evidence against the John at all. So in that respect, it's working. What isn't perfect, and this is something that abolitionists are very keen to get right, is that there aren't enough exit services for the women. That There are some social work-based exit services in Sweden that I really would rather run by feminist-led NGOs rather than, I mean, you know, social workers, which I'm healthily sceptical about. But it's working far better than legalisation and decriminalisation, for sure. <laughs> Listed to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Julie Bindle. We're talking about her latest book, which is The Pimping of Prostitution Abolishing the Sex Work Myth. And Julie, in the book, you talk about, and I guess this is a uh, sort of byproduct of academics and, you know, PhDs becoming involved and stuff, but you talk about the use of changing of the language around prostitution in a sort of way to soften the debate about it. Tell me about that. A, a good friend and colleague of mine called Janice Raymond, who wrote a book called. Um, not a choice, not a job, or it might be the other way around. Either way, uh, it's a book that came out three or four years ago on the sex trade. And she found an amazing quote from uh, a slaver, from an apologist of the slave trade in the US, who was talking about, I think, faint-hearted poetesses uh, being very, very upset about slavery. And he suggested that rather than refer to the Negroes, as he put it, as slaves, you should use the term assistant planter. And this is exactly what happens with the sex trade. It's true, decriminalising the entire sex trade, which means the pimps, the johns, the brothel owners, all of them, it does solve the problem of pimping because you just refer to them as managers. And you, of course, refer to the johns, the punters as the client. So you dignify all of those involved in this trade at the exploitation end. But the woman herself, whether she's called a sex worker or not, is never dignified. She's always seen as a whore. She never wants to register in prostitution. She can be named, for example, in New Zealand under decriminalisation if she takes her pimp, which we call brothel owners under decriminalisation, if she takes him or her to an employment tribunal, which you can now do under decrim, she can be named in the newspaper. Why wouldn't she? Because this is a job like any other, isn't it? So when you refer to it as employment, it means that you have to accept that women will be registered and named as being prostitutes, but that the brothel owner will be dignified as a businessman. But there are other really worrying euphemisms that the academics use now. 
they refer to prostitution, especially in the um, global south, as selling love, as the Cambodian bar girls, as one academic I quote in the book said. They are selling love. And I think that these young Cambodian women who are so desperate that they're having to hang around with hideous old white greasy men pawing them as doing anything but selling love you know it's a form of torture so you can dress it up all you like you can call it sex surrogacy where women are sent out to deal with disabled clients or the 40 year old virgin or whatever you can refer to it as the girlfriend experience where you are if you're in prostitution you're obliged to spend two weeks with a john where a four minute bone shaker in the street is far preferable to that but it's still prostitution and it's still abuse. And when you refer to a man forcing a woman in a brothel to have sex without a condom, which is a regular occurrence, and you call that breach of contract, well, it's rape. So what does that mean about sanitising the language to the point of where we refer to rape for some women as breach of contract? It does often seem to me that the, the discussion around sex work and the legalisation talks about a job and talks about the employees of that job. But I always seem to forget the customers. So you interviewed some men that use prostitutes. So who are these people and what, what was it like to actually talk to some guys? Well, over the years, I've interviewed a number of sex buyers. And for the book, I interviewed a fair few. But I've also been involved since 1999 with, with talking to men and, and looking at what will deter them because we want to, we want to use the least punitive deterrence, I think. I mean, it has to be linked to the criminal justice system. We don't want to send them on a course like tends to happen with domestic violence. We want to actually, you know, um, have them logged as criminals rather than the women they're buying. But we don't want to put them in prison and we don't want to be punitive for the sake of it. So part of my aim in talking to the sex buyers was to find out, yeah, what would make them stop? And it turns out, not surprisingly, that very little would make them stop. All you have to do is say, this is harmful. You are in trouble if you get caught again. You might get a letter to your house. Your car might be impounded. And by the way, have you ever thought about the way people see you and the way that the women see you? So that's one thing. The other thing is about the men's attitudes to women. And I always have to kind of split sex buyers into two groups for the purposes of their misogyny. Some men are pressured by their peer group, maybe even by their fathers, especially under legalisation or normalisation of the sex trade to go visit a brothel for their first sexual experience. The myth is that this woman's a professional, which will teach him how to do it. And of course, she's just someone to be used in this scenario. And of course, it's, it's true to say that these young men aren't told that this is one-sided sexual consent. Because obviously you wouldn't need to pay somebody if she was consenting to do it because she was attracted to you or wanted the sex. And in terms of misogyny, those that get introduced to prostitution sex before they've really developed their views about women, very likely become misogynists. Because, of course, if if that's how you're interacting with women, and if you're seeing them as just a vessel, and if you're using someone for your own sexual pleasure, knowing that she doesn't really want to be there, then that forms a view, generally, of women. that they're, they're there for you and for no other purpose. And then there are the men who go to pay for sex because they are misogynists because they really despise women. They don't want that interaction, human interaction. And let me just qualify here. I don't mind if people want to have sex with each other through a hole in the toilet door, if they want to have group sex in parks, as long as it's sort of out of my view. I don't mind if people want to have sex with each other without ever knowing their name. That's not my business. It's not my concern. This isn't a moral issue. It's about paying for sex, knowing that somebody else wouldn't be there unless that money is handed over. So the sex buyers tell us a lot about what prostitution is. There's a terrible, terrible level of racism and colonialism in the sex trade. White men will talk about, you know, I heard one in, in the red light zone in Amsterdam. You know, he wanted an Asian woman to have sex with. It was like choosing from a catalogue, one of them said. I want to try the Asian one next, one said. What about a black one? Have you ever, ever had a black woman? And I hear this when I've been talking to prostituted women in the downtown east side in Vancouver where the murdered and missing indigenous women usually hail from where they say look this is a white colonialist issue the men who buy us just see us as nothing 
you know we are plucked out of our communities and used because we're seen as other we're seen as lesser than other women the women they might look across the breakfast table at uh, the next morning so they tell us a lot about their views on race and also on class because of course you know men sex buyers come from every social class every culture and race but there is something highly privileged about going and paying for a sexual interaction that you demand and that you want tailor-made to suit you and that the women in prostitution in the main the vast majority are from the lower social class and have faced terrible poverty and social exclusion but the men tend not to care about that they become hardened to the notion that you can just get what you pay for i mentioned that there are academics and i wonder if we can perhaps talk about one in particular in your experiences with him. We've got a good Dr John Davis. Tell us who he was and what happened. Well, John Davies, I first met in 1999 when I was at an anti-trafficking conference and a police officer from Europol asked if I knew this British man who was suspected of being a baby farmer in Hungary. And he was already at Sussex University at the time studying for his his doctorate and he was supposedly an expert in anti-trafficking measures and also an NGO leader, someone who advised governments even and ran his own projects, all relating to the sex trade. And John Davis had this view, like many in the academy, most in fact in the academy, that sex work, quote unquote, is simply a job like any other. And all you need to do is remove all criminal laws and allow men to buy as much sex as they want and women to sell as much sex as they like for it to be okay. And he wrote a book which is a classic trafficking denial text. He was part of a research centre, the Centre for Migration Studies, that churns out most of the research relied upon by the big international organisations such as Amnesty and by governments that wish to decriminalise the whole sex trade. It is shameful in the way that it invites no PhD students, it would appear, to come into that department and study prostitution from a different perspective. For example, looking at the abolitionist model, studying the Johns to look at attitudes to women, anything that would problematise the sex trade. The studies that come out of that department are, at best, dismissive of the harms of prostitution, at worst, promotes prostitution. Now, John Davies was indeed a baby farmer in Hungary as a young man in the late 1980s and early 1990s. He then progressed on to trafficking women so he could get two for the price of one. So often the women would be impregnated by the Johns and the babies would be sold to Brits and Americans. He then went back to Sussex University, having been arrested in Croatia, thrown out of Romania, banned from the US, because his criminal exploits were getting to be very notorious amongst some law enforcers and uh, I followed him and waited until he was in court the first time round and this was before Leveson so there was a friendly copper that kept me informed about what was happening with their investigations into him because they knew that he was also frauding charities that were supposed to be helping women and children globally and he was in court in 2009 for two counts of child rape and sexual abuse of which he was acquitted because as I later discovered he bought his way out and in 2016, so just a year and a half ago, he was in prison for major charity fraud to the tune of five and a half million pounds, along with his own son and an Albanian called Olsi Volnateri, whose sister um, had been a partner of John Davies and was with John Davies when he was doing his doctoral research in Greece and in France, when in fact, as I have on the record and irrefutable proof, he was trafficking and pimping women. So all under the banner of Sussex University, this man is a major criminal. He's only been convicted of charity fraud and tax fraud. He's never yet been convicted of the abuse towards women that he has been carrying out for decades. And my uh, research and investigations continue, let's just say. Davies is in prison now for 15 years. He was given 12 years for charity fraud and three years on top of that for um, harbouring weapons in his garden shed that was discovered a few years back and they've only just um, cleared up the matter and, and got the sentence handed down. But there are many people in the academy that knew that Davies was beyond suspect. And when I tried 
to whistleblow on him, when others tried to whistleblow on him. Well, one other person a long time ago, who in fact ironically is a, a sex workers' rights campaigner who's on the opposite side of the fence to me, when we tried to get an investigation into this man, even though he was pimping during his doctoral studies, we were given the cold shoulder by Sussex University. So I'm really hoping that this whole rat's nest will be uncovered and Sussex will have to answer to what, what has actually happened over the years with Davis. Just one more thing then to finish off. Let's give the end of the interview to some of the survivors that you talked to in the book. Tell me about some of those women. I interviewed 50 survivors of the sex trade for the book and importantly all of them are activists. None of them are ever wheeled out for their rape stories and their child abuse stories. I didn't approach any of the women who I met in countries around the world asking about their stories of abuse. If they wanted to tell me, then of course I would listen. But I wanted to ask them, how do we end the sex trade? What do we need to do? What laws are the best? I asked about how the police treated them during their time in prostitution. Who the pimps are, who the johns are. How the business is organised. What happens in legal brothels and illegal brothels. And which is worse. And these women are, of course, the experts in this, but they're rarely listened to. The academics are listened to. The 1% are listened to. The ones that write the books and go on our TV screens and speak in terribly posh voices about how empowering this is and how it's a choice. And these women were from every walk of life. Two of them even ended up being involved in the pimping game themselves in order to get out of prostitution, but then soon came a cropper with that and are are very very honest and open about that but the women themselves are relentless and it's far harder for sex trade survivors to stand up and be counted and fight against this industry than it is even for those brave survivors that speak out against domestic violence and rape and child sexual abuse or FGM or any of the other horrors inflicted on women and girls and the reason why it's harder is because they're told that they're fantasists, they're liars they're mentally ill. They're told that if only the stigma was removed in prostitution, they would have been fine. They're told that their Johns are not Johns, they're clients. They're told that their pimps are just managers, benevolent managers. They're gaslighted to a degree that I've never, ever seen before in any other movement that seeks to tell the truth. But these women, and there are some men I interviewed also, but in far fewer numbers, they are the vanguards of this movement. And they are not giving up. So I suppose I always think if, as a feminist campaigner, I recognise and I do that this is the hardest fight that you can be engaged in on violence against women, I think how much harder it is for those women. So I've been talking to Julie Bindle. We've been talking about her book, The Pimping of Prostitution, Abolishing the Sex Work Myth, which is out now from Palgrave Macmillan Books. Julie, thanks so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you, Neil. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Andrew Muller. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archive at littleatoms.com. John Crace is The Guardian's parliamentary sketch writer and author of I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, among many other books. He writes the digested read for G2 as well, and he's also now the author of I Maybot, The Rise and Fall, which we're going to be talking about today. John, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you very much for having me. So can we talk about being a parliamentary sketch writer first of all that's like a it's like a particularly refined version of political writing where does that tradition come from well it's a very british tradition i've spoken to colleagues in america in europe uh or the mainland europe and there is no such thing when you tell them they're a parliamentary sketch writer the first thing is that they feel that you're drawing something that you're a cartoonist like a court artist yeah or something but it goes back a long, long way. For about 200 years, Britain has this unique tradition. I mean, Charles Dickens started his career as a uh, parliamentary sketch writer as well. And for me, it's the greatest sort of pleasure, really, because it gives you full license to sort of make fun and to satirise our politicians And whereas sort of normal lobby correspondents and reporters are obliged to report accurately what the politicians are saying, and if if they say X is happening, they're obliged to copy it down and sort of put it in print, regardless of if they think it's true or not. Um, The sketch writer has more liberty, if you like, to explore the subtext and to make fun of the omissions as well as the things that are actually said. Talk us through like a, a, a typical day. What are you actually doing? You're obviously working in Parliament. So what sort of interaction are you having with the MPs and things like that? How does a story come about? Well, you can't cover everything. So I'm basically looking to cover the best theatre of the day be that an exchange in the House of Commons or a select committee hearing or even a stump speech. I mean, especially during a general election campaign, you go out on the trail with the Prime Minister, leader of the opposition, various other cabinet ministers, and sort of follow and log how they interact with ordinary people. But, I mean, take... I mean balance of the week changes i mean a wednesday you're always going to be in line for prime minister's question time that'll be your default sketch of the day and something quite big has to happen to kind of knock that back either they've got somebody fantastic in front of a select committee or there is an absolute ding dong going on otherwise every day starts with Uh, ministerial questions so that would be a second default period but occasionally you can just sort of break the rules and if nothing of great interest appears to have happened then I mean maybe a today interview or good morning Britain you know if an politician has embarrassed themselves hideously on the television or radio that makes a good sketch as well And in terms of getting on with politicians, it's a weird kind of relationship. I'm not reliant on them for stories in the way that reporters are, because my job isn't to kind of predict the news or to guess. Oh, yeah, exactly. So I'm not beholden to them really. I can, in a way, be as rude or as nice about them as I like. But then, if you are rude, that must, you know, have you upset people in the past? No one ever admits to having been upset. Uh, I imagine they have. I mean, I kind of feel that if I was a politician and I read some of my sketches, and indeed the (laughs) sketches of my colleagues, then there would be kind of moments when you would go, (gasps) take a deep breath and um, kind of just sort of wish the day to end, really. But there's also this kind of weird thing that in politics... 
that if you write one rude or slightly scathing or satirical piece about one MP, you automatically make friends with 649 others because there's nothing that... I mean, schadenfreude sort of rules, mm -hmm. really. And also, but there are some politicians who would rather be written about rather than ignored. Yeah. Um, George Osborne was always a case in point. He really didn't mind. He kind of did. He saw politics as a game, I think, you know, as much as, you know, governing the country. And he understood that sort of the, there was a tradition of sketch writing. And he was quite happy to make sort of headlines and to be written about in in less than flattering terms and if you kind of passed him in a corridor he would always say a kind of hi you know in a kind of friendly way do you think that's that could be a problem though because like you know people like george osborne as you just mentioned and somebody like you know boris johnson to whom politics seems to be like a just a jape sit in the position we're in now that you know we get to by the end of this book with brexit and everything seems to have been brought about by politicians who just thought that, you know, it was all a bit of a lark, really. It is a problem. And, I mean, interestingly, my kind of personal relationship with Boris Johnson has changed because in the beginning he was very much in the George Osborne role and would say, yes, loved your sketch, John. I mean, he probably didn't, but, you know, he would be... He was very... Boris in the you know he was sort of hail fellow well met you know it was all it was all good fun but I think it's less good fun for Boris these days I mean in my own personal view is that Boris is a narcissist you know he doesn't like the negative attention that he's getting from so many people and he can't I mean I think initially Brexit was this big game for him there was that incredible story sort of related by his sister um, in the Mail on Sunday around the time of the referendum that she was she remembers going off to play, have a game of tennis with him in which he was sort of batting the ball furiously back and forward, trying to make up his mind whether to support the Remain camp or the Leave camp. And, I mean, that's a sort of bizarre bizarre kind of image really that this the sort of fate of the nation depends on sort of boris's mood after a game of tennis that boris should have come out so strongly pro-brexit then when he was clearly wavering could have gone either way. when he when you could have gone for most people that sort of the fact that you don't know what is right should colour everything that you say about something. You should you should reflect your uncertainty, you would have thought in a politician. But for Boris there was none of that. It's sort of like he's made it up, it's made his mind up and it's off we go. And there was another really striking image the day after the referendum. And Boris was sort of filmed leaving his uh house in Islington. And crowds were booing him. And he looked genuinely shocked and frightened. I think that was the first time he'd ever had anybody saying anything but, gosh, you're a good laugh, Boris. And I was at the press conference that Boris and Michael Gove gave the day after Brexit. And they both looked to be in shock. I mean... Gove looked like a sort of man who had just come down off a bad acid trip and just realised that he had murdered his best friend. You know, they they looked completely out of their depth, and and that was the moment I kind of thought, God, we really are in trouble actually, because these politicians have been playing a game for their own particular ends in a kind of rather opportunist way. And now the country was going to actually have to live with the consequences of their actions. This book that we're going to talk about, I Maybot, The Rise and Fall, obviously it charts the, um, the so far and still inexplicably going on short career of Theresa May. And you develop as it goes through the book, she becomes more and more this character, the, the Maybot, which keeps repeating the same stock phrases over and over again and her programming starts to go wrong. And that obviously arises from 
you know, the fact that she comes across as, you know, quite cold and inarticulate sometimes. And obviously you've been able to develop this character out of that. But at the same time, does her having that sort of personality make it harder for you as a sketch writer? I think there's a sort of, you raise a number of really kind of interesting issues. I mean, one, I mean, if we're, if I could just say, take it back to her becoming prime minister, mm-hmm. it was just in the most bizarre circumstances because sort of David Cameron throughout all the referendum campaign, whenever he was asked, what if you lose the referendum? Will you still stay on as prime minister and see us through Brexit? You know, Dave had said, yes, of course I will. But at 9.30 on the day after the referendum, Dave announced his he was going. And so there was, there was this lacuna, there was this vacancy for the job. And I think initially everybody thought that Boris was a shoe-in. And I think Boris felt that he was a shoe-in. But then sort of Michael Gove knifes Boris and wounds him so narcissistically that Boris sort of drops out of the campaign before he's even started, which is telling, I thought, because there was no reason why Boris couldn't have gone on to win the campaign anyway, even with Michael Gove standing. But Boris dumps himself out, and we're then left with Stephen Crabb and uh, Liam Fox who were the first to sort of fall away, Stephen Crabb because nobody knows who he was, and Liam Fox because everyone knew who he was. And now th- everybody knows who Stephen Crabb is, but he obviously wishes they didn't. Yeah, <laughs> there is that, but that's another whole different ball game. And then Michael Gove was the next to sort of fall out, and that was very much because I think people then felt he was so untrustworthy he might even knife himself in the back. And then we were down to the last two who were going to officially go to the Tory party to for a vote, uh, Andrea Leadsom and Theresa May. And Andrea Leadsom got caught out in an interview saying, as a mother, so many times that she sort of disqualified herself and resigned from the contest almost before it had started. And so Theresa May had this bizarre ascent to power where she'd become prime minister where, yeah, by literally saying nothing and just sort of waiting for all her opponents to fall by the wayside. So she was this kind of unknown character. And as a sketch writer, I'd come up against her, obviously, in her role as Home Secretary. And she'd always struck me as this sort of split personality really there was this veneer of competence on the outside but when you kind of looked at what she had achieved there was always some level of failure attached I mean throughout her time as Home Secretary she had made this huge play for bringing down immigration which obviously kind of played very well with the conservative right but Immigration was sort of steadily went up and up and up under her her watch. And she never really explained or took any responsibility for that. There were other sort of big cock-ups. I do you remember the kind of passports mm-hmm. when the passport office went on strike? She let junior minister take the, the fall for that one. So she was both kind of ruthless and sort of ineffective, really and yet had this veneer of competence. And that veneer of competence was sort of built up post-Brexit. I mean, there was both among the left and the right, I think, this feeling that there was a sense of sort of relief, in a way, when she became Prime Minister. Because there did feel, when you looked at all the other options, that she was possibly the only adult left in the room And if we were going to go through the kind of pain of Brexit separation, which would be undoubtedly the most sort of difficult negotiations in a generation, possibly two generations, then, you know, they kind of felt that we needed somebody who knew what they were doing. And so there was a kind of tendency to kind of build up Theresa May into this figure who was... The least worst option, basically. But, uh, but also was sort of kind of strong and sort of knew what she was doing. And, you know, the Times, the Sun, the Mail, 
and the Telegraph all kind of had this sort of Iron Lady Mark II kind of image attached to her. But, I mean, one of the joys of being a sketch writer is that you do see these people close up. And I began to sense there was a kind of a dichotomy going on here between the image that was being built up and the person that I was seeing. And then I came up with the, the notion of this malfunctioning Maybot. In fact, in November last year, that was when she first appeared as the Maybot in a sketch. And it was in response to an interview that she had given to Sky after a trade mission to India. She was asked a whole lot of questions and she robotically answered a whole set of completely different questions, which made great sketch material. And I can't honestly say where the word Maybot came from, but it just it's one of those kind of images mm -hmm. that sort of seeped into the consciousness, really. And I kind of thought, yeah, that works. And I didn't thereafter always call her the Maybot. I mean, it sort of took time. I came up with, you know, during the election campaign, when it looked like she was going to storm to an 80-seat majority, I also called her Kim Yong-mei because it felt like, you know, she was... The supreme leader of a failed state, um, which is sort of where we felt we were heading. But what was interesting was that the sort of the Maybot term got picked up by, you know, it became part of my sketches, but, you know, it seeped into the public consciousness and other newspapers, uh, The Sun, The Times, and indeed The Spectator, also began to call her the Maybot. And there was one glorious sort of moment when I think in a, one interview before, about a week before the general election, the son asked her, how do you feel about your Maybot persona? And I kind of felt, yes, yes, I've arrived. And she said very robotically, I don't think I'm robotic at all which was just sort of kind of class grade A jacket quote, really. <laughs> to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to John Crace. We're talking about his book I Maybot, The Rise and Fall. And John, I wanted to talk about another one of the uh, one of the scenes from the book of a sort of high comedy stroke farce, which is Theresa May's first eventual meeting with Donald Trump. Tell us about what happened. Oh, that was the it was the most extraordinary scene. Because sort of Theresa was sort of desperately over eager to get to the president because after he had been elected, the first person who had got to him, a British politician, had been Nigel Farage, who had been sort of photographed in his gold lift going up and down. And that had clearly rankled with Theresa. Then thereafter, the next person to have got to him was Michael Gove who had gone, managed to get an interview, courtesy of Rupert Murdoch, in Trump Tower as well, before he was even inaugurated. So Theresa was sort of desperate to get in there. And there was this sort of horrible moment when they were caught walking together, when the president sort of grabbed her hand, really. And in a way, I mean, often images are the things that tell you as much about what's going on rather than the interviews themselves and certainly as a sketch writer I kind of work with images as well jumping forward there was that 
great scene after a European Council meeting uh, about uh, six to eight weeks ago when Theresa May was pictured slumped in a seat in a back room in Brussels and just looking at a desk on which there were sort of four pot plants. And, I mean, what her handlers were doing, letting her being photographed like that. But thereafter, I began to use the the pot plants as characters in a sketch and gave them voices because it really looked like she was sort of begging them for help. And that was the very much the image of the kind of Trump first meeting that that sort of came to mind of they're just sort of holding his paw, and the press conference sort of thereafter was again an extraordinary scene because Theresa May knew what was coming, and clearly Donald Trump didn't because the American press had been quite respectful to presidents, but. Dear old Laura Koonsberg, who had the first question off of the British media, went straight for him and asked him about sort of various links to sort of right-wing organisations and supporting illegal regimes. And Trump was just sort of left sort of clutching air, really. And Theresa May, you could see just sort of the pain on her face, really, because she was thinking, oh, God, here I am my desperation to get to the president and what's happening is the British press are asking all the questions that I'm too frightened to ask him. I want to get us towards the um, election that that she inexplicably called (laughs) and um, you know we all know what happened. Obviously not many people foresaw what actually did happen and and as a sketch writer, obviously you're writing in the moment, you know, you're writing, seeing what's going on in front of you. One of the joys of, of having a collection of sketches like this is you've been able to then add little bits in sort of hindsight, you know, sort of yeah. commenting, putting a bit of context into what's going on. You mentioned the sort of terrorist attacks and things and like Grenfell Tower and stuff. In the... But also, again, you can see this, you know, Jeremy Corbyn emerges in these sketches as... You know, just a minor character in the background. Even obviously, the focus is on Theresa May, but he is the leader of the opposition. So again, let's let's get on to. I suppose we should talk about why she even called that election in the first place. I think it's quite simple, and it was maths. It was about the polling. I mean, Theresa May had said seven times in interviews over since she had first become prime minister, "It's not in the national interest. There is no way I'm ever going to hold a general election." And then the Tuesday after Easter, she calls a press conference outside Downing Street to announce it suddenly in the national interest. And I don't think it was anything to do with the national interest. It was purely because the polling had consistently said that the Conservatives were 20 points ahead of Labour. And if that was correct, that would translate to about an 80 to 100 seat majority which would have made her completely unassailable then. One could argue that she had done things in the wrong order. She should probably, if she was going to call an election, probably do it before she triggered Article 50 rather than after. But it all looked good for her, even though she was, by any standards, hopeless during the campaign, just reduced to saying strong and stable to a few Tory activists over and over again. It was the most unusually presidential campaign that I've ever observed. I mean, normally the Prime Minister obviously does the brunt of the heavy lifting in the campaigning, but the Cabinet are also kind of wheeled out to do events along the way and to kind of give this feeling of a government-in-waiting, a kind of collective responsibility. But Theresa showed no signs of even recognising that she had a Cabinet. She did just one press conference with Philip Hammond early in the election campaign, And that was a humiliation for Hammond because they were sat there together. And again, I think it was Laura Koonsberg who who asked, said, so if you win the election and the polls are right and you win the election, is Philip Hammond still going to be Chancellor after it? And she refused to answer. I mean, mean, Philip Hammond just sat there looking sort of like a man who had just been sacked on the spot. 
really and to sort of show so blatantly that you had no faith in your in your chancellor and that you're going to sack him was strange politics i mean i think it was partly a sign of her lack of emotional intelligence which is the kind of maybot thing but also i think a sign of her overconfidence as well she never thought she was going to be held to account i mean in her mind philip hammond was gone she was going to get this huge majority i mean in terms of corbyn he is a peripheral character because you know there was no indication throughout the campaign that he was really gaining traction there were signs that Theresa was messing up. She messed up over the dementia tax and also the party manifesto. But even with all that, it looked like she was still on course for a healthy majority. And, I mean, that's what the Labour Party felt as well. I mean, Corbyn did some good rallies. He was much more engaging as a leader and his his events were much more animated and more fun and there was a better, more air of goodwill about them but there was no real sense that he was hooking into a, a national mood there was no nobody not even in his own team not a no one in his own team felt that you know there was something shifting enough to make a real difference i mean i've spoken to a lot of labor mps you know, both during the campaign and after. And none of them saw it coming either. A lot of the MPs, you know, were expecting to lose their seats. They thought 40 to, you know, 60 Theresa majority was the minimum. And that if Corbyn could restrict her to, to 40 seats majority, that was probably better than could be expected. And so for the exit poll to come out saying that she was actually going to lose seats and have to form a minority government. It was a sort of Michael Portillo moment, really. And for me, the, the uh, I was in... Because I had to sort of write sketches sort of for different editions mm -hmm. throughout the night. And I'd been invited to the ITV studios where George Osborne was one of the pundits. And for me, that was... He was the sort of the highlight of the night, really, um, from a sketch writer's point of view, because I saw, watched his face when the um, exit poll was announced, and th first was a sense of confusion, a sense this is wrong, something's gone wrong, and then the look of absolute delight on his face, no matter that he was, as you know, supposed to be a conservative, you know, he wanted revenge. This you know, against the woman who had sacked him, you know, just mercilessly when she'd become Prime Minister. I think George Osborne had rather hoped that he would survive intact somewhere in the Cabinet. But no, she, you know, he was part of the ASEAN regime and was off. And clearly George was really pissed off about this. And so his obvious delight as it became clear that the exit poll wasn't a rogue exit poll and was in fact going to be kind of translated into into reality and i mean he was the first person to call her a dead woman walking um which is kind of extraordinary kind of turn of phrase for a politician really as you say in the book though if he'd have uh, if he'd have hung on on the back benches for just a few months longer he'd have been in exactly the right position to have challenged for the leadership. He would. And I personally wonder whether he regrets that now. There would have been the perfect moment for him to do it. I mean, I think he enjoys his life as the editor of The Evening Standard. You know, gives him a chance to produce sort of anti-Theresa May headlines at least twice a week, if not more. But I think part of him must feel, if I'd known that she was going to call this election and it was going to go so badly for her, I would have stuck around. Because there is also, in no doubt in my mind, I mean, one of the reasons the book is called The Rise and Fall is that she is fallen. There is no comeback for her. I think she wanted to walk away from the job the day after the election, much like Cameron had walked away from the job the day after the referendum. 
I think she was so hurt and so baffled and so humiliated she couldn't go on. But I think the Tory party said, you've got us into this mess entirely down to you. We would get rid of you if there was anybody who we thought could carry the kind of country through at this particular moment. I think that's a, a good point for us to finish. I think that was a strong and stable interview we just did, John. <laughs> so I've been talking to John Crace. We've been talking about his book, I May Bot, The Rise and Fall, which is out now from Faber and Guardian Books. John, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.